Hello, Liturgy Guy listeners. This is your host, Jesse Weiler, and we have another great episode for you. This week, we are talking about beauty. This is the topic I've been waiting to talk about since we started this podcast. Uh, we touched a little bit on this a couple weeks ago when we talked about Catholic imagination, but this week we really dive into what is objectively beautiful, because I think sometimes it's hard to tell. So without further ado, episode 25 of The Liturgy Guys. Enjoy. going to talk to you today about the Mass. The liturgy is what enculturates the gospel for us. What are you, some kind of altar boy? And, and it enculturates it into our day-to-day life, our, our day-to-day existence. It's pretty dang exciting, huh? We're called not to some crapshoot called life, but to an adventure in fidelity that beckons us to cast out to the deep. The Liturgical Institute is proud to present The Liturgy Guys. Okay, so Dennis, do you think that oatmeal cookies with chocolate chips are beautiful or with, I mean, because I hate raisins. If you put raisins in an oatmeal cookie, I feel taken advantage it's of. It's an abomination of yeah. ontology is yeah. what that I is. Feel tr- I feel tricked. I feel tricked. I they, they look like chocolate chips. But an oatmeal not. raisin cookie by nature is supposed to have raisins. An oatmeal chocolate chip cookie is a different kind of cookie. It's in a different ontological Yeah, category. but I hate being tricked into thinking it is an oatmeal raisin cookie when... Uh, I mean, sorry, it is an oatmeal chocolate chip cookie when, I, when it's oatmeal raisins. Raisins are the worst. It's like it's lying to you, isn't it? Yeah, raisins well, are just dried up, old, wrinkly old fruit. Well, that's the reason why the external expression of a thing has to conform to the internal reality of a thing. You know, we've talked about that a lot in sacraments, that there's an invisible, unknowable, and sensible... Uh, spiritual reality and then we have to externalize those things and what we expect is a correspondence between the idea of the thing and the external expression of the thing and we kind of know when that happens but if it looks like one thing and turns out to be another thing then we kind of get unhappy because yeah like your raisin chocolate oh experience well I mean, believe it or not this is the mundane but wonderful introduction to the concept of beauty as thomas aquinas uh understood it i reply that <laughs> Wait, what? Is that a is that a Aquinas joke that I don't get? Yeah, it's kind of his, his scholastic method in the Summas. He presents all the the arguments against something or for something, and then he replies with his answer <laughs> and and sort of knocks them down one by one. But the kind of little working definition of beauty that I use from Aquinas is that we call a thing beautiful when it reveals its ontological reality. The O word ontology. Right, this is very important stuff, and you know, I use the ontological word all the time because it's the essential question of what is a thing, and if you don't know what a thing is, then you don't know if the expression of that thing is right or wrong. So, someone might say, Well, a human person is just meant to be enslaved. Well, no, that's not the nature of a human being, and so therefore, you can say that's wrong to enslave a person because there are people and they have human rights. And so knowing what a thing is at the level of its nature is very, very important. And God knows this best. And the mind of God knows the, the depths of the meaning of every single thing because he has perfect intellect and made all these things. And so our job in making everything is to make it approximate the way God understands it and therefore it's expressing the mind of God. And so the more it does that, the more we call it beautiful in this Thomistic tradition. So... So, so that's where we're getting this idea of beauty. And uh, so how does that relate? So we talked about how we get there and how we can see that. But how can we call something beautiful 
Um, is there a subjective reality to that, or is it purely objective? Yeah, I wanted to ask something similar, right? If that's one way to look at beauty, St. Saint, Thomas's, or maybe Aristotle's, I don't know. Or what, do what you other, reply? Yeah, I reply. What, how do you, you, what's your respondeo? I mean, what, what other ways, what other ways of understanding beauty are there? Well, there's what they call the classical or the realist tradition, which basically says that beauty is in the object. It's, a, it's an attribute of being. So if a car exists and it's a blue car, Blueness is an attribute of the car, and it's not an abstract concept floating around, you know, blue, the blue what? Like a thing has to be to be blue, and so a thing has to be to be beautiful, and so it's in the object. I see beautiful things when I look at them, when I perceive them, and they're outside of me, and then I perceive them through my senses, and I experience beauty that way. So, so the, you, the other extreme then would be that beauty, it comes from you as applied to the thing rather than coming out of the thing. I did the air quotes. There. Right. So you throw yeah. some, you know, cow dung on a canvas, and then you, you know, squirt some blood on it, and you hang it on the museums, and everybody says, oh, we've never done this Boy, before. that got real graphic. Well, th- I mean, seriously, people do this kind of stuff. And then they say, oh, well, I've had an emotional response to it. That feeling is what I call beauty. And so that is kind of what they are, the modern or subjective response. But in having a handle on the classical definition of beauty is very, very helpful because it rescues us from all these sort of subjective, arbitrary responses. So uh, beauty is when, uh, we call a thing beautiful when it reveals what it is, as the mind of God understands it. Jacques Maritain calls this the eschatological flash. Kevin loves that phrase, eschatological flash. You can see him smiling over there right now. Eschatological <laughs> flash. So that means that there's this future that we're going to experience the fullness of things and we're not there yet. But when that reality bursts into our own life, then we are actually experiencing things as we will experience them when the fall or the effects of the fall are removed from us. So for a moment, we are experiencing our own self, our own intellect glorified and knowing the way God knows. And the result is joy and delight. Wow. I love that. And this feeling is real. And so it's a subjective response in the viewer. But the feeling is a response to having the effects of the fall relieved in you. And so that comes from an encounter with an object in this realist uh, tradition. When you see or experience something, it's the thing. It's the being of that thing that is so full and so real that you that's what you're encountering. So, Reminds me of Paul on the, on the road to Damascus, right? And in a, in a flash, uh, Christ uh, appears to him and, and it's... This encounter with the truth and the beauty and the goodness of that which he is is now in him. Right. And it wasn't, an encyclopedia didn't just come down from the sky and say, now read about God the Father and you will have an intellectual understanding. But you see, the relationship between knowing and the truth and experience of beauty is very clear because what we said is when you call a thing beautiful, when it reveals what it is at the level of its own nature, that means you have to know what's true about it. John Paul, probably others before him, called a beauty as the splendor of the truth. So this relationship between uh, truth and beauty. Absolutely. And it's, a, it's an attribute of being. So when you talk about a car being blue, it can be blue, but then it can be a beautiful blue car. It's this extra thing. What makes it beautiful? It's just like the carness of sports cars so perfectly represented that you say, well, that, that solves my problem. Sometimes people say, if you know, a woman puts on a dress and her you know, friend might say, oh, that's so you. What does it mean for it to be <laughs> so you? Yeah, what is that? What that means is the identity as I know you and your ontological <laughs> level is now being expressed by that dress. And they say, oh, no, that's not you. Or, you know, that's too much of something or not enough of something. It's not, everything's not in the right uh, way. So when, when the, that's so you happens, that means 
I know you more. And so I'm understanding the truth of you better. And so what the response in that is delight. So all this splendor of truth that, that John Paul talked about and other people have talked about uh, is that it's knowing, but it's not just knowing, it's delighting in knowing. It's that extra thing that's added that makes knowing uh, delightful and it gives joy and it flows out, not just from knowing, but from the process of knowing itself is so easy and full and perfect. You know, if you ever have the light bulb moment, like you see in cartoons, when somebody flash. understands and the light bulb goes off and you're like, oh, what is that? Or if you hear a really great homily or a really awesome podcast, you say, yes, I've been it's, waiting it's for that. Big if. Yeah. <laughs> it's not just, <laughs> I am now so glad that I know this equation. It's, that solves a problem I've been wanting to know for a long time. And the result is joy. The soul yeah, is exalted. Or if a homily can be, chapter five of the catechism says such ben and such. Stein. Right? <laughs> Mueller. Right. Or it can be, let me tell you about the revelation of Jesus Christ so that you understand it and your response is joy. Same information, but one is presented in a way that, that brings joy, but it's to the mind. The mind knows. And that's a funny thing. You know, people, uh, beauty is an object of intelligence. It's not an object of the emotions primarily, although there are emotional responses. That's kind of contrary yeah, yeah, to yeah, what yeah. I would think. Say more about that. That's yeah. a key point. Well, because when you experience something beautiful, it's not just a sense experience, although it involves the senses. It's a more perfect, more full, more delightful, and more easy way of knowing. Because you, remember, if it's revealing its eschatology or what it is at its nature, level of its nature, you are knowing what a thing is. And therefore... That's an object of intelligence in the mind. Mind is where, where we know. But the soul delights in it too because the soul is exquisitely attuned to know our fallenness. We all wish we didn't get sick. We all wish we could learn you know, quantum mechanics easily, but we don't. Our, our intellect is... I, I actually don't wish that one. Uh, <laughs> not something I'm interested in. Okay, phenomenology. Imagine oh, yeah. if we knew phenomenology like that, right? And people with, with now you re- laugh at the phenomenon, but that's what the the true phenomena should be. This expression of a thing's ontology, and this is why the phenomenologists started where they had to with the phenomena. It's like they couldn't presume the ontology; that was too skeptical. People didn't agree, so they wanted to get to the uh, uh, to the ontos to the being through its phenomena. But yes. anyway, I digress. Right, and our, our mind is oriented to knowing right we want to know we want to know god we want to know the truth we want to know the fullness i mean think about everybody on the earth whether you're republican democrat whatever they all have a sense of what is true and they want to know it understand it impress it upon the world and when you come to some knowledge of what's true there's a response that's delightful and you say wow now i know i've been waiting for that um there's the you know and now i see right now i've been wanting to see and now i see yeah well i once was lost and but now I'm found, right? Yeah. This is this is a, a great line. So, you know, in the Platonic understanding of things, there was something called the form, which was kind of the perfect idea of things, and it was just sort of hanging out out there somewhere in space. You know, the Christian version of that is that there's the perfect knowledge of a thing, but it's in the mind of God, and God then allows us to share that perfect knowledge, and the time will come when we do participate in that knowledge more perfectly. You know, at the end of the world. Um, but right now we're in this in-between time when there's we know there's something to know, but it's very hard to know it. And we see, but darkly. We, we... Right. So if someone takes the dark glass away from your eyes and you see it, that's an experience of a beautiful thing. A beautiful thing does that. And kind of going into this, uh, Dennis, on our way to, uh, to Chris's place to, to record the podcast episode, I was telling you about this modern church um, in the northern uh, suburbs of Chicago called Saints Faith, Hope, and Charity. 
and how immediately if you were to tell somebody, oh, this is a modern Catholic church. Built modern, in the 60s. Yeah. Right. You know, my, my first reaction would probably be like, oh, it's probably ugly. It's probably done wrong. It probably does not, at first you were talking, look like the thing it's supposed to look like. It probably does not look like a church. But then when you walk in, um, it's very well done and it's very clear as that it it does what it's supposed to do, but just in a way that I've never seen before. Right. And I was able to understand that uh, two reasons: one, just because I'm I'm Catholic, I've been living my faith, but but two, because I've been more informed and intellectually informed because I've been working at the liturgical institute and having conversations with you and Chris and and everybody else at the seminary, and and now I just have more knowledge of what something should look like. And so I can definitively say that that's something that's beautiful. Because it reveals churchness, right? Its ontological reality is Catholic churchness. And you, even though it's modern in its expression, it has inscriptions on the walls, it has painting, it has stained glass, it has angels, it has a beautiful altar, it has gold leaf. So it has all the revelation of churchness, even though it's done in a way that's never been done before. Now, if you went in there and said, it's a ski lodge, what a beautiful ski lodge. Oh, yeah, and there's an altar in it, too. <laughs> Strangely, I like it, but it's, hypothetically not, it's not a church. Um, so when churches don't look like churches, what do people say? This church looks like a pizza hut, pizza hut airplane hangar, uh, you know, whatever, factory. Spaceship. And so there's, there are ontological categories. So everything has an ontological category. So a, a dog, it looks like a cat, is not a very good dog. Mm -hmm. ugly although doggone cat cat. there is catness (laughs) and you can have as many different breeds of cat and within each breed you can have as many cats as they're ever born they're still participating in catness but their category is cat and dog's category is dog and of course dogs are you know highly superior to cats but churchness is churchness and factoriness is factoriness. And if you try to say, well, a church should be a factory because it's the, the place where the Eucharist is produced, like a factory. It's some weird pseudo-theology. <laughs> a, a mass factory? Well, well exactly. <laughs> mass people, people did that in the 50s. They said industrial architecture is the prime expression of our age because we live in an industrial age and therefore churches should look like factories. Cool. I know it's absurd, but it's an ontological mismatch. Okay. By that same reasoning then, would a factory that looked like a church be an ugly factory? Well, yeah, imagine having a factory. Oh, nice. Uh, I see, see what, what I you did, did there. Yeah. Wow. Imagine a steeple and a cross and gothic stuff and saints, and then you go inside and they're you know, printing the newspaper. What is this? And so the, one of the proportionalities in beautiful things is there's the idea of a thing as it ought to be, and then there's the sacramental expression of that thing, and they should match, just like your raisin and chocolate chips. If it looks like a raisin uh, oatmeal cookie... I'm still mad cookie, about that. And you bite in, if it looks like chocolate chips and you bite into it, it's raisins, it, it fools you because you have... Uh, thought something and then when you get there it's not that so many mystics have these experiences where a demon will take the form of the virgin mary or something and tell them oh to, yeah to uh, sin, padre right? pio had a priest appear to him and he was like oh you're not you know you're you're just the devil or whatever right and he says if you're not the lord jesus christ you're not from the lord jesus christ depart but see there's an exteriorization that's false it looks like one thing but it's not the other thing uh it's, it's, it looks like one thing but it's not that and so that's not a beautiful thing, even though it might be delightful to look at for the moment, but then you find there's a lot of um, untruth behind it. All right, so you've talked about truth and goodness uh, and beauty a little bit, these, trans, what do we call these, the transcendental uh, attributes mm-hmm. of being, but um, beauty itself has its own breakdown, I guess, right? Elements? Yeah, yeah break well, it down, break it down. Well, Thomas Aquinas talks about the three constituent elements of beauty. And they're not that complicated. Sometimes people just memorize the terms. But remember, a beautiful thing reveals what it is. 
And a thing can't reveal what it is if it doesn't have all the things it's supposed to have. I mean, imagine it's the first time you've ever seen a car and there are no wheels on it. You haven't seen the fullness of car because wheels are component element. But if you've never seen a car before, then you might think... You might not know. Yeah. Or if you're on the farm up in Wisconsin, you can probably see some cars without wheels well, on Up on property. blocks, that's right. Oh, you yeah. mean cinder block wheels? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or, you know, anything without all of its stuff, all of its parts, is not revealing itself to you. That's what Thomas calls integritas or, or integrity, wholeness. And it's not so much, like, here's this word integritas in Latin, uh, constitution of beauty. It's a thing has to have everything it has to have to reveal to you what it is. If it's missing those things, it can't obviously can't reveal them to you. So it's... A it's car a, without wheels. A car without wheels, a pool without water, you know, anything that you, you know a thing is supposed to have. If it doesn't have it, it's not revealing it, so it's deficient. And therefore, it's not revealing the fullness of the ontological reality of its very nature. Give us a liturgical example. Oh, yeah, let's bring it home. <laughs> well, a, a church without an altar, right? Very obvious, right? Altar is the, is the constituent element of churchness. Or if you decide to leave out the Sanctus, for instance, because you don't feel like singing it that day, that's an integritas problem. It's missing something that it ought to have. And it makes the liturgy ugly then. Or, or less, not as beautiful. Less beautiful, right. No, Properly okay. speaking, there's no such thing as ugly. There's beautiful and there's less beautiful. The only ugly thing is non-being. So to be is to be beautiful, is the saying, uh, as it goes, because everything that exists shares in these elements of beauty. It reveals, they reveal their ontology from the, a rock to a tree to a gazelle to a person. If it reveals what it is, it is uh, participating in beauty in some way. All right, that's integritas or right, wholeness. wholeness. Right, okay. And then the second one they call consonancia or proportionality. Uh, the word con means you know, together, uh, and then sonar is like to sound together. I think it's sound good together, like sonar. Like the podcast. Yeah, we sound good together. Yeah, I think we do. Hum. All right, that didn't sound too good, but ideally... Yeah. We'll we, do another podcast um, on silence. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so that's due proportion, and uh, proportion is probably the most complex of all of them. But if you think about it... Um, you know, if you make a door, if it's going to be a beautiful door, it has to reveal doorness. Well, it's going to be adorable. If it's a door that's an inch high. You need to pick your examples. Better it's examples. not. Yeah, I have to have pun, <laughs> pun-proof examples. Not possible. Yeah. Um, a door that's one inch high is not really very much revealing what a door is for, which is to go through, unless it's for ants or something. But if it's a door for What is this, a door for ants? <laughs> well, that's what you would say. It's beautiful. <laughs> But it's a beautiful door for ants. It's not a beautiful door for people. Uh, I think everything is a door for ants. They're so small. They just get in anywhere. <laughs> so there's numerical proportion, right? But then there's a proportion according to the a thing's uh, telos, or its end in the cosmic sense of things. So uh, an altar that's made of cardboard is not really proportionate to its end, which is to be the throne of God and the presence of Christ in the world. Um, there are all kinds of proportions that are out there. There's the idea of a thing, and then there's a physical manifestation of the thing. There's a proportion there. Is it partially revealing the idea or completely revealing the idea? So that's a kind of a, a proportion as well. And there's Is still, it okay to partly reveal something and still be beautiful? Well, all things partly reveal something yeah, I guess because true, we live yeah. in the fallen world. But you know, if you ever get that test paper that comes out when you turn your printer on or whatever, and you see those little bars, and it starts out as white, and then it gets grayer and grayer and grayer, and then turns black by the other end, that's kind of a... Uh, participation bar there so mm -hmm. blackness starts with zero and then gets gray which is like 25 percent, and then you work your way up to 100 percent. we'll never be 100 percent in this world but our job is to get as close to 100 percent as we can in revelation of uh, the reality of a thing this is why liturgical expression at its fullness is more beautiful 
when it's called for by the church and the, the proper day, than one that doesn't because we can't be bothered or, or you don't want to do it because it seems old-fashioned or newfangled or whatever. The idea is encounter the ontological reality of the liturgy, and it has to be proportionate to the liturgy in heaven. And ideally, it'd be one-to-one. I mean, if I painted a picture of you and it looked like Chris, Jesse, you'd say, mm-hmm. there's ugly. <laughs> <laughs> there's some <laughs> there's some proportionality, right? You have eyes and a nose and mm-hmm. a mouth, but it doesn't look like Chris. Ideally, you pay a guy $10,000 to paint your portrait. You, the least you should say is it, it looks like me, right? Mm-hmm. And if it doesn't, that's a proportionality problem between you and the painting. And so there's all kinds of proportionalities. All right, so beautiful, litur- beautiful earthly liturgy, or the more beautiful an earthly liturgy is, the more proportionate it is to the heavenly realities, but also the more proportionate it is to us as perceivers of those things, right? So it corresponds with the perfection of heaven, but if you just said, well, everything's going to be invisible at the liturgy, well, that's not beautiful liturgy because we can't perceive it. So it has to show itself to us? Yes. All right, so we have uh, integritas. And we have to be proportionate to it by having studied the liturgy so that we know that when we see it, what we're seeing. That's where disposition comes in. So there's the proportionalities are. There's a whole web of relationships. Okay. So, so yeah, the third element of beauty then, is, which I think is related to this. It is called claritas, and that is the power of a thing to reveal itself to the mind. And it's it's kind of an abstract concept, but you think about if you want to drive a car, you have to have the ability to drive a car. You can't drive a car without having the ability to drive a car. So something could be proportionate and full, but invisible, and then you can't perceive it so you you've i've heard you use this example before about uh, wonder woman's uh, invisible, invisible jet. jet is it right. beautiful well you know how you know how you know in those old cartoons that she's sitting in the jet is because they draw a line around it so which means it's not really invisible. these are really old cartoons jesse you probably <laughs> oh kind of like the keystone cops yeah, the wonder twins no that's really oh. really old oh sorry kevin they're, they're not cartoons <laughs> but kevin. I, I, speaking kevin. of kevin i use the kevin bacon movie uh, as an example hollow man Oh yeah, I've seen that. Where he gets that injection and he turns invisible and no one can see where he is and he starts be, you know, getting into mischief and he's robbing people and stuff. And they're trying to capture him but they can't see him. And he doesn't have the power to reveal himself. He has all of his parts, right? They're all there. He's in, in integritas, no problem. Consonancia, all the parts are a right relationship, but he's invisible. He doesn't have the power to reveal himself. So how do they capture him, do you remember? Oh, I, um, man, they sprayed him with something. Yeah, they threw a bucket of paint over him. Yeah. Suddenly... He wasn't invisible anymore. He had claritas. He had the power to reveal himself. And so imagine if you say beauty is the revelation of ontology. If you can't reveal your ontology, you can't be beautiful. It's a necessary element. You have to be able to reveal it in order to reveal it. And you have to have everything you need to have to reveal what you are. And they all have to be in the right place to reveal what you are. Side note, uh, that is a horrible movie. I definitely recommend that you never watch it. There's a lot of naked Kevin Bacon in that movie, like yeah. most of his movies. How would you know? He never keeps, well, until, anyway. It's inappropriate, I, crude, but yeah, definitely don't watch it. I heard on, a, again, a Bishop Barron, a, this is like advertising for Word on Fire. Well, we like him. Show. Sure. And he, he was talking about, he, he talks about golf. He was, gives a lot of examples about golf. He says, the claritas of a beautiful golf swing is, is when it reveals the form of the perfect golf swing. When you say, ah, now that... Is a shot. Right. That is and a golf then, swing. What do you want to do when you see the perfect golf swing? You want to imitate it. I want to do that. Right. So this is why beauty matters in a lot of ways is because it inspires action. When the response to beauty is uh, is the movement of the will to the, what's good about it, and you say, "Oh wow, I'm not just going to say ho hum. Wow, I want that. I want to do that. How do I learn how to do that? Um, you know, who are some of the great guitar players from the '70s? Jimi Hendrix. Jimi Hendrix. How many people said? 
I hear Jimi Hendrix and I want to do that. I'm going to pick up a guitar right now. Or you see some friend of yours. And then how many people did that and then did it for like a (laughs) couple of weeks and then their guitar is in their storage unit? Not me. I never did that. (laughs) Or Michael Jordan. Right. I want to play. I want to be like Mike. That's right. a commercial. And whether you can do it or not, it still, still inspires your will to want to be that way. And so the, the response to beauty is a movement of the will toward the good. You should know this, Chris. What's the movement of the will toward the good? Augustine's definition of? Love. Love. <laughs> <laughs> right? So when I you like when you guys put each other on the spot and not me because <laughs> it makes it easier for me. Do you think about love? What does love make you do? Oh, I don't care about that. Oh, love. Yeah, I don't really care about it. No, when you love something, you want it. You fall in love. You say, come over here. Let's go for a walk. Let me write you letters, you know, sit in my arms, whatever. Love re- induces a response in the one who loves to want to be together with the, with the thing loved. And so beauty, and this doesn't mean just like external beauties of the fashion model type. It means the proper revelation of, you know, human dignity in that sense. Um, you Love um, inspires a response in the viewer. So all of a sudden, you're talking about beautiful liturgy. What does it mean? It's full. It has everything it has. And so then you have to know what full liturgy is. Remember, weeks back, we talked about the Christus Totus and how the full Christ or the whole Christ includes the angels, the saints, the Trinity, souls in purgatory. So maybe a point even before that, though, when we talk about beautiful liturgy, it's not beautiful according to me or according to you, according to the liturgy, according according to to Jesse or to the pastor or according to the liturgy committee. It's it has its own internal beauty that it's radiating to us. There's an objective ontological reality called heavenly liturginess, which, like all beautiful things, has an infinite number of ways of being expressed. Mm. But once it's not expressing that anymore, then it's something else. Okay, And so... Um, and so what does it have then? It has wholeness, everything involved, eschatology. So it's holy. Cosmology, yes. <laughs> it includes all of creation. It's uh, doxological. It's all about God's glory and giving glory to God. So if suddenly things are missing and it's kind of dull and it doesn't involve all of creation, well, it's not full anymore. And so it's less beautiful than it ought to be. What do you mean involves all of creation? Well, what's an example? Well, the angels uh, are singing at the throne of God. The stars are moving in their orbits that God gave them. So when you go into a church and you see a blue ceiling painted with stars and then the angels are up in there, that is our sacramental encounter with the cosmic dimension of the liturgy or the new garden. Yeah, you talk about the new garden a lot. Right, you see vines and leaves and branches painted or carved in traditional churches all the time and it's showing heaven and its uh, earth, the new earth and its um, future glory. That's part of the liturgical assembly of things. It's part of its integrity or wholeness. Right. And so, you okay. know, we've all been into the church built in 1986, and it's kind of beige drywall and a bunch of wooden beams and a spindly little altar and a whole bunch of pews and a concrete floor. And you think, I don't know, something's not right. And maybe you don't know to say integritas or cosmology or eschatology, but at the intuitive level. Man, if that's what heaven looked like, I'd feel gypped. Well, that's it. <laughs> you know, imagine like if your typical Sunday experience with so-so preaching, bad vestments, screaming choir, and you know. And all the babies church. in the cry room removed from everybody else. Well, we've mentioned Father John Grant, uh, alum of the Liturgical Institute before, and when his dad told him that heaven would be just like a mass, he started to cry. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that was like our first episode, I think. Right, imagine if liturgy were celebrated so beautifully in every church in the world that people said, I can't wait to get in there, right? Mm-hmm. And there's always going to be a mismatch between the external and the ideal. And we just kind and of that's ad- admit that. And that's a that's proportionality, a right? Okay. Right. And, you know, proportional 
if we don't have the angels, then that's not proportional to the heavenly reality. It's whenever integritas, whenever one of these three elements goes, the other one goes with it. So if you're missing something from the liturgy, it's no longer proportional to the heavenly liturgy. So if you if you have an integritas problem, you have a consonancia problem. If you have a consonancia problem, chances are you have a claritas problem because if you can't reveal the thing that you're revealing because it's missing the stuff, then you're with you're lowering its power to reveal itself. Well, hopefully there's something you could take for those problems. Um, well, there is. It's called the General Instruction on the Roman Missal, a deep knowledge it's of funny the funny that you need a germ to get rid of those problems. <laughs> That's right. Uh, well, I uh, this is definitely a topic I would like to visit again because I think we can probably dive deeper into it. And uh, there's, I think there's so much more to this, but... Yeah, it'd be interesting to I mean, apply this uh, in more given examples, like what makes a beautiful altar? What makes a beautiful baptistry, et cetera? And then apply these categories to those things. But it's always a two-part movement. Is that a beautiful altar? I like it is not the answer. It Does is, it reveal what it is supposed to be? And then you have to say, well, what is it supposed to be? So you right. have to know what a thing is. Then you have to be able to reveal that in a way that people understand. So there's always a legibility and the, the, the viewer does matter. It's not just whatever I feel like it should be. So what is it? How can I reveal it? How can it be perceived? This is the trio of um, beautiful things. And when you see it, there's a lot of discussion of rest. You rest in beauty. It doesn't mean you take a nap. It means <laughs> I don't have to try very hard. You know, what is the response when someone sees a, a sign, there's a big ugly building, and it says, then you're restless. It says Sacred Heart Catholic Church. What do you do? Where's the church? That's the church? It doesn't look like a church. The sign says church, but it doesn't seem to be a church. And instead of delighting in church, you're wondering why it doesn't look like a church. Your mind is going into does not compute mode, which mm -hmm. is not relief from the effects of the fall. It's a magnification of the effects of the fall, where if you see a beautiful church, you just say, oh, there's the church, and you're yeah. done. So basically, don't put raisins in oatmeal cookies. I mean, just I think don't. that's the takeaway. Unless <laughs> it's an oatmeal raisin <laughs> cookie. All right. Well, uh, I think it's time for another email question. Let's check it out. Hopefully it has integritas. And no raisins. Hey, Liturgy Guy listeners, this is your host, Jesse Weiler. And before we get into this week's email question, I wanted to quickly remind you about our Young Adult Liturgy Conference coming up in April 2017. If you're a young adult and you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, both Dennis and Chris will be speaking at this Young Adult Liturgy Conference in Chicago. So to learn more about that, go to www.betransfigured.com. So why go to the Liturgical Institute? Well, if you want to serve the church and do liturgical studies from the heart of the church, not just ritual anthropology, but really discovering the mystery of prayer and at the same time the depth of the tradition, you won't find any place quite like this. This place is faithful to the magisterium, but it's a dynamic orthodoxy, not dry. And at the same time, it not only makes the faith come alive, it also empowers you to help that be the experience for others as well. Hi, I'm Dr. Scott Hahn, and I want to warmly recommend the Liturgical Institute for your consideration. Pray about going and studying and sharing the richness of our living tradition. Mail call! Mail call! Oh, Moses, Moses, why do you question me? Why do you care? Today, we have a similar debate over this. Anyone know what this is, class? Anyone? All right, so we so. have a question this week from Anonymous. Anonymous asks, is it still okay for a priest to wear a black chasuble for a funeral mass? Absolutely okay. Oh, man, yes. I was worried about what you were going to say. Permitted by the church, never forbidden by the church. 
in number uh, 346 in the general instruction of the Roman Missal. This is where it lists all of the various colors that uh, the church uses. Oh, there's, so there's more than just black for the funeral. Well, yeah, but, but even uh, in this particular section, it, it, it isn't so much on funeral masses, although you could find this information, I think, in the introduction to the funeral rites. But in this section of the general instruction, it talks about all the various colors that the church uses even outside of funeral uh, liturgies. So uh, white, red, green, violet, rose on uh, Letari Sunday and Gaudete Sunday. Pink, right? Is that the pink? That's rose. <laughs> <laughs> even, gold, even gold or silver vestments no. can be used. Blue is not mentioned anywhere, at least uh, in the dioceses of the United States of America. Perhaps it is elsewhere. But uh, here's what it says about uh, uh, the color black. Besides the color violet, the colors white or black may be used at funeral services and at other offices and masses for the dead. So, for example, uh, masses on uh, All Souls Day or masses uh, uh, on a weekday uh, in, in, on the anniversary or commemoration of some of the faithful departed. So black can be used as well. So, again, funeral masses, white, violet, or black are all legitimate colors. Wow. In 1947, uh, Mediator Day, which was the encyclical, first encyclical on the liturgy by Pius XII, he said Catholics would be straying too far, going into error, if they wanted black vestments forbidden. Now, they were never legally forbidden, although culturally people started saying, oh, well, we don't want to be about mourning because we're resurrection people, and so we have to talk about Easter and not about you know, the death of the person so much. And culturally, at least in the West, in the U.S., people started saying, oh, I don't want to be so glum. It's like people today who wear flower dresses to a funeral instead of a black suit. You know, It's because they, they say, oh, well, we want to celebrate the life of the person. So the question of black isn't so much about death as it is about mourning. The church, as a body, mourns with the family of the, the all the mourners there. And so um, they pray for the dead, and the prayers are very beautiful. All the prayers of the funeral mass are very hopeful about you know resurrection and all that. But it is a sad moment for everybody involved in the earthly sense. And so think of it not so much as the church reinforcing death and grinding that into our eyeballs with black vestments, but mourning with the mourning family and then hoping for the resurrection of uh, that person. Yeah, there's a very uh, memorable line from one of the prefaces to the, to the, in the funeral mass. It says, uh, for believers, life has changed, not ended. And so black, um, you know, certainly doesn't mark uh, the end of life, but this transition uh, from this world to the next. And, you know, in places, certain places in Asia, white is the color of mourning. And so you couldn't just have a universal law that says you must wear black every time because mm -hmm. you want to wear the color that's appropriate to mourning, which is not an excuse for Americans who don't want to believe that death is a reality, so therefore we're going to kind of ignore it and pretend that it's something else. So the church acknowledges death, and the church acknowledges that we have hope in the resurrection. And so black may not always be pastorally what everybody wants, but it is certainly still allowed by the church. All right, so uh, Anonymous, I hope that answers your question. And if any of our other listeners would like to submit questions to the Liturgy Guys, you can email us at questions at liturgyguys.com. God bless. The Liturgy Guys is produced by the Liturgical Institute. If you like what you've heard today, like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. And be sure to check out liturgicalinstitute.org to discover more about our degree programs, public events, and publications. Refresh your soul and renew the church at what Bishop Robert Barron calls one of the very best places in the country to receive formation in the Catholic liturgical tradition. Now that's a podcast.